Folks, just while the boys and girls are on their way out, you could be looking up the Bible passage we're going to read today. Um, Richie's asked that we read from John chapter 1, page 1063. John chapter 1, I'll read the first 18 verses, page 1063. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is God's word. Morning. It's good to be back. Um, I used to love asking people, how are you doing up here? Because you get all these blank looks from 300 people as they're like, should I answer? I'm not quite sure. But it's good to be back. Uh, kind of just reminded of lots of things that I miss. Just being here. Music is good. Uh, the minister does a good job. No, he does a good job. I, I, I learned a lot, that's for sure, when I was here. Um, so let me tell you a few things about what I'm up to these days, what we are up to, because I went down there as a family, and we haven't added to our number, we're finished, <laughs> but all five of us, six of us, <laughs> are, six of us are, are missionaries to Cork, um, <clears throat> most of you will know, but some of you won't, I'm, I'm originally from Cork myself. So I'm going back home, or I have gone back home. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, it's my place. I love it. But um, one thing that happened in Kirkpatrick a lot is I got very emotional frequently. 
Uh, so I always remember that about this place. Um, so Cork is a county, one of the 32, if you're into that system, and uh, it's the largest out of all of them, and it's actually 55% the size of Northern Ireland, and the population is just over half a million. And in that size, with that amount of people, there are three Presbyterian congregations. So we haven't exactly done a great job of infiltrating uh, Cork yet. <laughs> but um, I am a minister of two-thirds of the Presbyterians of Cork. <laughs> and we're both, well, it's very small. Uh, there's one congregation in Ahada, which is, uh, I, there's probably no reason that you'd know it. Um, and there is an average attendance there of 12. And then I'm also the minister of the church in the city, which has an average attendance of about, uh, just under 40, right? So very small. And um, we, we actually, since we've come, it's been good. We've had, we had a few more people join us. Um, so that's been encouraging. Um, I, 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 it is very, very different makeup, you know. They're both 50% maybe from all over the world, and then the, the rest of them are from the area. They've been there a long time. I think we have uh, two people who are actually Presbyterians, born and bred, and the rest are all uh, converts from a whole heap of different backgrounds. So it's a very interesting mix. Um, what else to say? I'll give you a couple of highlights since I've been there. Uh, we're doing a, a communicants class at the moment. I got seven or eight people, so eight people in it. And I always loved the communicants class here. And uh, it's been good to go through that with them and just see them kind of light up as they're understanding stuff and be willing to stand up in public and say, yes, uh, I believe these things, and to join our congregation. Um, a lot of times when people talk to me about it uh, and ask me about it, they say, you know, is there any of the Protestant Catholic tension that we have, any of that crack? And there's not really. That's kind of all gone, to be honest with you. Uh, some of the old-timers will tell me about different things. But if there's any tension at all, it's not because of Protestant versus Catholic stuff. It's just the kind of general uh, non-Christian vibe that you get um, in the Republic at the moment. So I'll tell you one story. There's a guy in our congregation... And he might be listening to this, so I have to be very careful what I say. But uh, he, he identifies, he's, he's very open, he says he identifies as a liberal Christian, and uh, that's his framework. And recently he went back to college as a mature student, right? Now I get on with him, I have great crack with him. Actually, I have the most crack with him than anybody else. But he goes back to study sociology, right? And I thought, all right, I'm going to get a few rockets from him now when he's learning all this stuff. But actually, he's gone into UCC, and he, he has been oppressed, is probably the best way of putting it, by the, the, the kind of secular mindset that, that refuses to listen to any aspect of faith. And it's, it's almost turned him into an evangelical. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing to see. But that's indicative of kind of the, 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 the hardship that we have. Also... They're too small, you know, they're not too small, they're very small, so I end up doing most of the stuff. So um, probably my biggest disappointment at the moment is that I haven't got out 
to talk to people as much as I'd like to about the Lord, just doing regular kind of evangelism. Like people come into the church all the time, every week or during the week. Yeah, so I've had loads of conversations, but I would love to have done more kind of structured stuff, and I just haven't had the time. Um, but am I there? What am I there? Seven or eight months, something like that. And um, I've been saying to people, you know, you usually overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in five. So I'm learning. I have a dream. It might be foolish to say the dream because uh, if I fail this one, it could fail flat on my face. But my dream would really be to, after a couple of years, to try and start another church. And big, huge picture dream would be to start a heap of them. So, and then, you know, the Presbyterian system. What presbytery are we here? East Belfast, right? So there used to be a monster presbytery. If I could die where they reestablished that, that'd be good. So, that's what I'm up to. Oh, yes, um, some of you have, well, firstly, you gave us such a very generous gift before we left here, so thank you for that. Uh, a lot of you are praying for us, and a lot of you still support us financially, and a lot of you have sent friends and family to us. Keep at that. We need all your prayers. We'll spend everything you give us, and we need as much people as we can get. <laughs> all right? So... This morning, I wanted to look at a few verses from the reading that we'd heard earlier. Um, I should say, I'll, I'll be around after, we'll all be around afterwards uh, in one of the halls. Um, so if you have any questions, just come up and chat to me afterwards. This morning, I wanted to look at a few verses from the reading that uh, Christoph gave to us, the last five in particular. And this is a sermon that uh, I, I wrote for my own congregation only last week. We've started a series looking at John's Gospel. And uh, the first 18 verses that Christoph read out for us there are, are John's introduction to his book. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But basically, this introduction says, in summary form, all of the amazing things that Jesus, or that John believes about Jesus. So it's a, it's a dense little 18 verses, and uh, indeed I've spent uh, six weeks going through them. As I said, I want to focus on the last couple of verses, 14 to 18, so if you, if you keep it open front of you, it'd be handy. But let me tell you a, f- a few things firstly about the whole of this gospel. Uh, John has a very specific purpose in writing this book. Um, he's not just writing all, down all these cool things that he knows about Jesus for the crack of it. He has a purpose in mind, and we know that because at the very end, he states his purpose for writing quite clearly. He says, and I quote, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Now, let me say that that does not mean that this book is only a tool for evangelism. What I've just read might sound like it is, Like John specifically wrote this for converting people, but that's not the case. Because all Christians, including those who've been Christians for many years, need to hear the gospel today as much, if not more, than the day they first came to faith. The gospel isn't just the ignition, it's the engine and the petrol of the Christian life. And it gets you into the kingdom of God, but it'll get you through it too. You need it today. You need it today. 
So it's true to say that the Christian life, uh, that the Christian, sorry, may have life in the name of Jesus as much as it's true to say to a non-Christian that you can have life in the name of Jesus. Now, with such a purpose for this book, you might expect that John would end his in- this introduction, this dense passage full of descriptions and labels of Jesus that essentially make him out to be the greatest, most powerful being in existence. You would think, you would think, that John would then end this section with an appeal for people to have faith in him. But that's not what he does. He does say in verse 12 that to all who believe in Jesus that they have the right to call themselves children of God. So he he makes the the evangelistic appeal, if I could put it that way, at verse 12. But that's not where he ends. The end is the section that we're going to look at today, this business of the glory of God. And you see, I think John is behaving like like a good dad here. Your dad teaches you things. He should teach you things. And he does so in lots of ways. And actually, it doesn't matter if he was a good dad or a bad dad. Your father will put shape for you on how to navigate this life. And that's true whether he's good, bad, present, or otherwise. And he'll do that by telling you what to do, telling you what not to do, intervening when you're screwing it up, giving out to you, praising you, giving you feedback, all that kind of thing. But the main way you're going to learn how to do things is when you see him doing it. You pick it up passively. Right? So John wants us to believe. And he's told us to believe. And he's told us what to believe. But here at the end, he turns to look at this person of Jesus himself, and he tells us what he sees. He's doing exactly what he wants us to do, which is to look at Jesus and know that when you do, you see the glory of God. He's putting this stuff into, into action. Now, I've been to to many talks that were hosted by this person or that, you know, seminars, conferences, this kind of thing. And most, but not all of them, were connected to my faith or my role as a minister. Sometimes they were good. Uh, I still remember exact phrases that were spoken at them. But a good share of them, I couldn't tell you right here now what was said. Um, I trust that I learned something good. I just can't remember the details. Sometimes I've gone to these because because of the person that was speaking. They were the draw. I didn't know, nor did I care what they were going to be talking about, but the simple fact that it was coming from this person was enough. And I've gone to a few of these types, right? But once, and once only, did I go to hear someone because of who they were, and it was a great evening. It was a brilliant evening. Uh, In a little shop in in Dalkey in South County Dublin about maybe 10 years ago. His, this guy was speaking, his analysis was on point, his ideas were inspiring, the crowd was moved to action, including me. Has that ever happened to you? Ever gone to one of those, see somebody, just because it was that person? In a similar way, I've been to a few concerts. Not many, uh, my peers, I, of all my peers, I've never had that much interest in going to concerts or gigs, but I've gone to a handful, uh, and the first one that I ever went to was the one I enjoyed the most. And maybe that's why I don't go, because none of the rest of them ever lived up to that first time. But it was this music festival called Creamfields. Any, any of you ever heard of it? Uh, a few smiles, right. That's good. I don't want you to know what it is. Uh, I went to Creamfields, and it was held in Fairy House 
horse race course in County Mead. Any of you ever down there? No, this isn't a horsey crowd. All right. Two Montes, yes. Yeah. And that time I went, it was actually one of, it would have had the hardest years of my life. It had been the hardest years of my life. And I remember standing in the queue to get in, and they had, an, they had the entrance on the actual racetrack. And when you got in, there was about 500 meters to the stage, or the stages. And as I was queuing up, the music started, and I could hear the, the beat, you know, in the distance. And I, I remember finally getting through this queue and getting in and then running down this gentle hill towards the stage and the sound was getting louder as I ran and it was like I was leaving every single one of my problems behind me. And it was a great day. It was a brilliant day. Have you had days like that? Concerts that lifted you? Yeah? Yeah. I suspect we've all had moments like this in our lives where we go to some place or some concert or we go to hear somebody speak and they are everything that you were hoping for. I've had very few of those moments in my life, but I've had some. I'm sure you've had two. And the reason that I start off with this today is because John NC's introduction with this section that we're focusing on with the words, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. And he's talking about Jesus there. And so the point, this is the point, the point of our salvation is not that you gain heaven and avoid hell. That's good. It's a great thing. It's not that you're going to pass the great day of judgment and how you've lived this life. That's true too. It's not that you have the Holy Spirit living in you to help you live for God. It's not that you have the spiritual veil lifted off of your eyes so you can understand all of God's word. It's not that your prayers are heard, not necessarily answered, but they are heard. It's, that you're, it's not that your sins are forgiven or that death is definitely the, not the end. It's not that all those brothers and sisters in Christ who have died before you, you will see them again. They are all great things. They're all true. But the point of our salvation is that we belong to God. And because of that, in this life, to a degree, and in the next, to a far greater degree, we will see the glory of God. And to see it is to enjoy it. There's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more satisfying than the glory of God. And John is telling us here that to see Jesus is to see God in his glory. Now, I'll come back to that idea at the end. But let me just go through this passage first and see uh, if I'm telling the truth. Verse 14 there, and John tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, earlier John had started this gospel with a few sentences on this word concept. And the long and the short of it is that he tells us that the word is a person and it's God. And here, he, in verse 14, he comes back to the idea and he tells us that the word has become flesh. In other words, th there is a person who has been born and th th that person is the word. And that person is God. Now we know from a few verses later that he's talking about Jesus. So John is telling us there that Jesus, who is God, was born a human just like us. And then he says that this word has made his dwelling among us. 
And here, again, uh, John is speaking directly to his Jewish audience, something that he does frequently throughout the book. And he's doing that with this phrase, made his dwelling with us. Because, strictly speaking, that phrase is, the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. You might have heard this before. If any of you are reading along with me in the King James Version, that's what it'll say there. A tabernacle is a tent. And it's the word used in the Old Testament to refer to the structure the Israelites used to perform sacrifices. And most importantly, it's where the very presence of God was present in a tangible way. And in many of the stories about the tabernacle, you'll be told that the glory of God rested on the tabernacle, or it came from the tabernacle. And you probably, maybe you, you do, you'll know the story about how once a year the high priest would go into the inner room of the tabernacle or the temple, and the other priest would actually tie a rope around his ankle, just in case the glory of God uh, overpowered him and killed him. Because there was always a chance that the priest hadn't properly prepared himself. That is, that he had gone in without being sufficiently holy. And that gives you a picture of just how holy God is. And yet John tells us that this same holy God has become a person and is living among us. He's no longer in a small room inside a small temple structure separated by elaborate religious rituals. He is living and he's walking among us. And, you know, before I go on, let let me say this. Um, I know, I was talking to Christoph earlier, I know some of you are, are working through some very fundamental questions about your faith. And if the word has become flesh, right, if that's true, that then means that there is true meaning to be had in this life. You, you can actually find a reason for living, what it's all about. Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you keep getting up in the morning? You see, for the Jews, the word was this creating power of God. It was also the message of God, right? The word speaks everything into existence, and the word also came to the prophets. So for the Jews, this phrase was a concept that wrapped up quite a lot of uh, important ideas for them. God was an all-powerful, and yet he was personal being, right? So the word for them communicated some very important aspects of who God was. For the non-Jews... Or for the Greeks, and John's audience would have been Jew and Greek, right? The word was this organizing principle, uh, the, the power behind existence. And so for both groups, the word was a very central figure to their understanding of what life was about. But whereas the Jews were happy to think that life was a, a religious life, and there was no discussion about this, it was a religious life. The Greeks, though, they had long argued over this concept of the word, and actually, by the time of Jesus, they'd kind of started giving up, giving up trying to figure it out. And they'd turned to different philosophies. The two main ones were the Stoics, who said, well, there's no meaning in this life. So the only thing to do is to be sturdy individuals who do well and do good despite the hardships and the meaninglessness of life. Stand up, be tall, do good. The other crowd were the Epicureans, and they said, well, yes, it's true that there's no meaning, there's no way to obtain this word in life, but keeping all those rules in the stiff upper life, sure, that's pointless. We might as well live it up while we're here. Eat, drink, and be merry. And I have no doubt that you can recognize both of those impulses in Northern Ireland today, yeah? 
But John has a very surprising message to both Jews and Greeks. He says, the word became flesh and lived among us. He says, the world, the thing that you've either been looking for or worship, it's, it's here. It's walk. He's walking on this earth. And actually, John says that no religion, no philosophy is going to connect you to the real meaning of life. Good living won't find you meaning. Wanton living won't find you meaning. But God will. And actually, God has become a man. So if you want to figure out what's the point of it all, the answer is Jesus. And the reason we can say, indeed the reason we can say such high things like Jesus is the answer to the question of what's the meaning of life is, as John says in the next verse, he has seen the glory of Jesus. And it's the glory that comes from the Father. And just like the Father, Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And if that's true, friends, then he is the source of all meaning in this life. John's not finished, though. In verse 15, he goes on, he talks about John the Baptist. John, he talked about John the Baptist earlier, and John the Baptist is a, a, a precursor, a messenger destined to come just before the Messiah, so he's an important part of, of proving who Jesus is. And John returns to him now, and he tells us that John the Baptist acknowledges that Jesus is far superior than he himself is. And then he moves on to giving some proof of this. If Jesus is from God, if he is the word, if, he's, if his glory is the glory of God, then shouldn't there be some evidence of it? And John says, and there is, says John, because from the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. How many blessings have you received in your life that you can trace directly to God the presence of God in your life. Are you a different man or woman today because of your faith? Hmm? I know you are, because I know some of you. <laughs> I've seen you change. I changed when I was here. That comes from the fullness of God's grace. Now at the start, I mentioned many things that are included in our salvation, but they're not the main goal of it. Things like gaining heaven and avoiding hell, forgiveness of sins, prayers heard and answered, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and many more. But all these things come through the Lord Jesus. And these things manifest themselves in our lives as many different kinds of blessings. How many prayers have been answered in your life? How much peace has been gained in your lives? How much assurance of heaven and of God's love has been poured into your hearts? How much guidance for what, what to do have you gotten? And all these things come from the Lord. And so John tips the hat at these as evidence of proof of what he says. And his next verse here expands on that a little because he says, the, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And actually, this is something that we talked a good bit just before I left but here. We did that series on, on Deuteronomy, you might remember it. But the law of God is a good thing. It guides us. It teaches us. It teaches us that we are far from perfect and restrains people to a degree. 
So the law is good, but on its own, it only ever commanded or showed us what to do. It never gave us the power to actually do what it commanded. Right? Just being told to do something doesn't actually make you do it. The ceremonies of the law never healed our sin. They never fully paid our debt. The law instructs us how to live, but we were never actually good enough by following it alone, never good enough to be in the presence of God by by virtue or our behavior alone. We were never good enough to merit God's favor by our actions alone. For that, we need grace and we need truth, and these come through Jesus. And I should point out, too, that some folk think that this verse means that there was no grace and truth before Jesus. That's not so. Grace and truth has always come through him. The ceremonies pointed to him and his work. The stories pointed to him. The prophecies pointed to him. Grace and truth were always there for those who had the spirit-given ability to see it. But the good news is now he has come. And things are much, much clearer. And when John looked at Jesus, he saw grace and he saw truth. I was talking to a young man um, uh, who came into the church only on Friday, actually. A lot of people do. It's a city centre church, the, the Trinity Church, and a lot of people do come in. And we got to talking about faith in Jesus, and I told him about how when I was his age, he was like 22, um, a lot of things attracted me to the gospel. But when I started to read the, gosp- the gospels themselves, the four gospels, I was, I was, then I was hooked and I remember during that time being blown away by this person. And my major impression was like, who is this fella? And when you read the Gospels, you'll see things in Jesus that are rare and are pure. You have virtues that very few manage to combine, and yet he does all of it. Tenderness without any weakness. Strength without being heavy-handed. He's, he's humble, but he's not timid. He's firm and he's unbending and un, he has unyielding convictions. And yet, at the same time, he's completely approachable. He was passionate without being prejudiced. He was powerful without being insensitive. There was never a jarring note when you looked at Jesus. There was never a false step. In the same way, when you look at the, at the sun which you're not supposed to do, but I think everyone does it a couple of times in their life, right? Even when you're 40 or more. When you look at the sun without a filter, all you can see is a bright blur. But if you look at the sun through a filter, you can see all the flames and all the details of its beauty and its power. Same way when you look at Jesus... It's, it's God through the filter of human nature. And you see things that you, you can't get your head around. That's what the apostles saw. That's what John saw. And he says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, has made him known. Now, you know what? Perhaps all of what I'm saying there might underwhelm you a little bit. Um, but I'll tell you this much, the Jews would not have been when they first heard this. They would have been shocked. 
and some are between greatly annoyed, if not infuriated, by this kind of talk. Because the reason is that they know what God's like. To say that Jesus is, is God, this guy, no way. Anybody of the Jewish faith who read this when John wrote it thousands of years ago would have immediately been absolutely thunderstruck by these claims. That you can see God when you look at Jesus, that you see the glory of God when you look at him. Because they knew, actually, that the presence of God is the most potent and dangerous substance there is known to man. If you go to Exodus, there's a couple of stories there, like when God comes down on Mount Sinai, and he turns it into this raging inferno. And he says, don't get too close. God says, don't get too close. My presence is on the mountain. He's very concerned. He says, if you come forward too close or if you touch the mountain, my glory might break through and it'll kill you. In Exodus 33, Moses says to the Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to see you face to face. And what did God say? He said, uh, come up here and I'll give you a hug. Um, I'll just open myself up to you. He says, no, Moses, if you see my glory... It'll kill you. So you get yourself into that rock there, turn around and stick your head right up against the stone and I'll walk behind you. Because if you see me, you'll die. Why would he say that? Well, it makes sense enough, actually, because the glory of God is God unfiltered. It's the very essence of who he is. You can't look at it. It'll burn the the eyes right out of your skull. And you know that story when, when the guards are coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the soldiers arrive and Jesus says to them, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. What happens next? They fall flat back on their, on their back. Now this phrase, I am, is God's name from the Old Testament. And the text says that the soldiers just fell to the ground. It doesn't tell us anything more. But most reckon that for just one second, Jesus revealed a glimpse of all of his glory. And they were put straight back on his backs. It's like he went... Friends, the one time that I went to hear that guy speak, and he was everything that I hoped for, I thoroughly enjoyed that night. That man, I've gone off a good bit. It was 10 years ago. I don't agree with all he says. I still admire his understanding and his grasp of things, but he ain't Jesus. That concert that I went to, at the end of the day, actually, I had to take two ecstasy tablets to fully enjoy it. Um, And it gave me a real taste of freedom and happiness. And it was, it was an important day for me. I met an American woman, not my wife. I have a type. It was a great day. It was a great day. And I started to go to church, actually, because of that day, three months later. And I, I left that American woman. But John, in this passage and throughout is making a fairly simple and yet profound claim. Jesus is God. And if you want to look into the face of pure power, 
pure love, pure grace and truth at just the enough levels you can handle right now. Look at Jesus. That's it.